This is the Human Action Podcast with your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. And this week, the subject is the stomach-churning announcement earlier this week that none other than Ben Bernanke, along with a couple of other economists, would receive the Nobel Prize uh, for their efforts, or his efforts in particular, in understanding crises. And of course, from our perspective, he's one of the great architects of the 2008 crisis and also someone who got the Great Depression completely and inalterably wrong as opposed to Murray Rothbard, who, of course, wrote the book The Great Depression, which we consider, along with his work on the Panic of 1819, uh, absolutely correct in their assessment, diagnosis, and cure uh, for these terrible economic calamities we suffer. So we've got our great friend Bob Murphy with us here to discuss. And Bob, you know, there's so much to say about Pernaki. Uh, some of those years I was in D.C. with Dr. Ron Paul when he was on the chairing the Domestic Monetary Policy Subcommittee within the Financial Services Committee. So as a result of that, basically, he had two opportunities every year to question Bernanke. Um, let, let's just briefly address Douglas, Douglas Diamond and Philip Dibvig, uh, mm -hmm. the two other co-winners. What's their story? Okay, so yeah, I'll, I'll uh, try to say this succinctly, and then you can ask me to unpack it if you want, Jeff. Um, so th their paper, I think it was in 1983 in the JPE, it, it was a, a classic in terms of understanding how banks can be involved in financial crises. It, it's a little bit hard for me to convey to regular people who, you know, who have not gone into a, a doctoral economics program that it, mathematical economics is so sterile and it, not because the people are, are dumb. They're not. They're actually really sh sharp. It's just to form the way they try to model things and formally have it in there and equations and things where you can just do literal proofs to like say, oh, this is going to happen. And here's my theorem two of this paper. It has to be really what they call tractable. And so there it's like, oh, there's one agent who lives forever. There's one firm, things like that. Like that's where you start and you build up on it. And so in 1983, for them to introduce banks into the model and try to really model like that was, you know, revolutionary. Like, oh, wow. Wait, wait, okay, wait, this, this, maybe is, this is this is like Robert De Niro getting an Academy Award for a movie in 1983. Why are we talking about this paper? Why are they getting the prize now? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know so much about that per se. So the, they're head banking. And then also when we talk about Bernanke too, so that's his academic work and involved banking. So that's the, the way they're lumping that together, saying under, you know, shedding understanding on, on how banking affects it. But what's funny is everything they're doing here, the diamond dipvig model, it's basically just talking about maturity mismatch or fraction reserve banking. It's a real simple three period model where, or two period, I should say, where, you know, and what, oh, the savers, they give money to the banks, but they want to have the option of pulling it out next period, but the banks want to invest in a two period production process. And that's the, and, and like, and I've seen dip big, like in interviews with people and they're asking them like to unpack what's going on. And that's it. Like, mm. that's the fundamental thing. And that was the brilliant insight in 1983 that then spawned a whole literature. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so from an Austrian perspective where that's, you know, the, the debates over fractional reserve banking and, you know, Rothbard in particular, I, I believe correctly amplifying what was in Mises all along, that that's the essence of what causes the, the business cycle and market economies. It's kind of funny to see that, that, oh, wow. And so there's this mismatch in the maturity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell us more. And it, it's like, he, you guys didn't know that. And, and so it's, it is, it's kind of refreshing that, yeah, I agree with a lot of what they were saying, but even there, they end up concluding that, oh, the way to solve this is to have um, deposit insurance and central banks. 
to act as a lender of last resort. And so my joke on Twitter was, if you had read the Nobel's announcement and summary of their research, you would think that after the 2008 crisis, they said, you know what, we should get a central bank and FDIC. Let's go start that now, because that's the way it's presented. Well, could I just add something real quick about the award itself? Of course, Alfred Nobel himself uh, was a Swedish chemist and engineer. So the Nobel Prize was intended to be for the physical or hard sciences. As a matter of fact, uh, one of his surviving family members blasted the idea of extending the Nobel to economists. And they said it was a PR effort designed to improve the bad reputation of economists. So that's funny. Uh, But it clearly goes to this idea of physics envy, uh, right. that the econ profession has. And I love this quote from Hayek, who got it in 74, I believe, correct? Uh, yeah. He said, the Nobel Prize confers on an individual an authority which in economics no man ought to possess. So that's a great quote from Hayek. Uh, I mean, what do you make of the Nobel itself? Is it a lifetime achievement award of sorts? Is it a signal to Fed critics that a Fed stalwart like Bernanke and a true believer like Bernanke is going to be feted? Uh, you know, is it is it independent? Is it political? What does it mean? So I, I haven't done like a, a ton of research into like the actual individuals involved. But yeah, my sus- strong suspicion is it's not a coincidence that Bernanke is getting this prize now as opposed to, you know, in 2005 or something. Mm-hmm. That, because like you said, I mean, his work was important. And for people who don't know, I mean, Bernanke was known in academic circles for his work on the Great Depression. And I'm sure Jeff will talk about the specifics in a minute. And so, you know, that they're not making that up out of thin air, that he, he was an authority on that field. And that's why when the crisis broke out, a lot of people who are very trusting of the establishment said, oh, good thing we had Bernanke at the helm because he's an expert on this stuff. So that that's true. But in terms of, yeah, why did he get the prize now? So given that they were going to give it to Bernanke, then it made sense for them to give it to Diamond and Ditvig, too, because, again, they all worked on the role of banks and financial crises. Um, so it's, it's not supposed to be a Lifetime Achievement Award. It really is supposed to be that, oh, mm-hmm. they had this one specific thing. But in practice, for something to be considered important enough to get the prize it should have spawned a whole literature, you know, like this. So it's it's kind of, you know, yeah, in theory, it's supposed to just be for this specific accomplishment. But in practice, like most of the people have a whole body of a lifetime of work that's built up around it. And yeah, there's usually this huge lag. Um, like the, the guys who just got it for physics, the one guy, like I think their original paper was back in 1969, the guy said. I heard him on NPR. Wow. So there is this this lag of, of, of you know, being recognized. Now, of course, uh, Bernanke was at the Fed from 06 to 14, nominated by W, renominated by Obama. And uh, he had a, a lot of exchanges with Dr. Paul in front of the Financial Services Committee. We might post one or two of those YouTubes. Thank you, Madam Chairman, and welcome, Chairman Bernanke. I, I want to make a brief comment, uh, and then I want to ask a question about the IMF. My brief comment is. Uh, uh, a comment about the answer you gave Mr. Brady about monetizing debt. Uh, because your balance sheet remains relatively stable with uh, Treasury bills, it doesn't mean that the Fed can't monetize debt. You mentioned in your statement that you uh, bought securities, mortgage-backed securities, and agency debt, and that's over $1.3 trillion. Well, where did you get the money? You, you created this money. So you did monetize debt. That went into the banking system. The banking system can buy Treasury bills. 
and they can borrow money at zero percent and and that's why they're making a lot of money right now because they can buy other debt and make a little bit more and it looks magic except for the mortgage holder the the people who are losing their mortgages and losing their houses right now we do see risks to inflation and we are taking those into account and we want to make sure that uh, that uh, prices remain as stable as possible in the United States. But how can you do this and pursue this, the policy you have, without further weakening the dollar? There's a dollar crisis out there and people's money is being stolen. People who have saved, they're being robbed. But you're, you're mistaken in saying that the Federal Reserve has spent any money. Um, you say five trillion. We have lent money. We have purchased securities. That's not buying, that's not dissipating, you know, the money. We've gotten all the money back. I, I hate to interrupt, but my time is about up. But I would like to suggest that you say it's not spending money. Well, it's money out of thin air. You put it into the market and you hold assets, and the assets aren't, you know, they, they are diminishing in value when you buy, buy a bad assets. Credit to avoid fiscal or exchange rate crises in countries around yeah, the oh, world. Yeah, but, but do, you, do you think this is a good idea? You agree with that we should make this commitment? I think in general that having the IMF available to try to avoid crises is a good and, idea, and yes. Again, where will the money come from? This is our problem in this country. We're bankrupt too. Mm -hmm. And also along this line, do you feel like, you know, you go along with this commitment, what, what are we going to do when a state gets under the gun, like California and others? I mean, uh, they're approaching uh, the state of, that Greece is in. I mean, we can't turn, turn down California. I mean, if we can pay all these banks and they come off, get off the hook and now they're making billions and, they're, and their executive offers are cleaning up, we, do you think we would ever turn down California or any other state that gets in the same situation? Well, that's Congress's decision. If you, well, you, you, you bailed out a lot of people from the IMF. You know, you'd have the capability of buying up some debt and doing all these kinds of things. We can't even audit you to find out what you do. So you can do anything you want. One of the infamous ones was in 2010, where Dr. Paul was asking him, you know, gee whiz, isn't all this unprecedented balance sheet expansion as a result of QE, of which Bernanke is really the mastermind. I mean, he created QE. Uh, doesn't that worry you? And of course, uh, the 2010 level of Fed balance sheet seems quaint by mm -hmm. comparison today. But nonetheless, I believe between... 07 and 2010, it had gone from less than $1 trillion to well over three and approaching four. So Bernanke basically said, well, you know, it doesn't really matter and we have a plan and we're going to, we're not worried about it. And so at the time, around this era, uh, 2010 to 2013, I just want to point out that a lot of people at the Fed, serious people like James Bullard, who's, who's a St. Louis Fred, Fed president even today, uh, talked about, we're going to return the balance sheet to normal when all this is over. I mean, they've mm -hmm. said that, you know, Fed figures have said that multiple times, which would imply a trillion dollars or less. And Bernanke himself at that hearing said, well, you know, it's probably a trillion dollars is probably about the right number. And it's gotten up to nine trillion with all the COVID stuff. But I just want to quote real briefly uh, from a paper that uh, Fed officials wrote in 2013, David Andolfato and Lee Lee, who were economists at the St. Louis Fed in 2013, they said, well, you know, if all this accumulated treasury debt is permanent, then it's reasonable to expect that the corresponding supply of new money would also be permanent and would remain in circulation, you know, thus under this, you know, uh, this, 
interest earned is remitted to the Treasury. The federal government can essentially can borrow and spend this new money for free. I'm quoting Fed economists. Thus, under this scenario, money creation becomes a permanent source of financing for government spending, which is what Ron Paul and a million gold bugs and Doug Casey have been saying since the 70s, that they're just monetizing debt. And then they say, you know, on the other hand, if the Fed's increase in Treasury debts is only temporary, da-da-da, the Fed's not monetizing government debt. It's simply managing the supply of money base. Um, and some means other than money creation will be needed to finance the Treasury debt, a return to the public through open market sales. So that seems to me a pretty wild admission. I mean, that's less than, fewer than 10 years ago, they were saying that we're going to get the balance sheet back to normal. And so are we just supposed to have exceedingly short memories? It, it seems like this is just absolutely crazy what they've done since uh, especially in response, allegedly, to COVID. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, Jeff. I mean, and you bring up COVID, too, and it's it's a good analogy to, to you know, with the two weeks to flatten the curve, that regardless of what, you know, I know people have different views on things, but whatever you think, surely if the American people had been told in, when it was March 2020, uh, what was going to happen in terms of the lockdowns and everything, they would have said no. Like even if there were much more catastrophic projections of death, they would have said, sorry, we're not, we're not doing that. That's crazy in terms of all the lockdown. But that's not how it was. It was dribbled out. You know, oh, two weeks, and then it just kept getting dribbled out. So I think you're right. It's the same sort of thing. If Marcus had been shown in the fall of 2008 how big the balance sheet was going to be in 2022, the dollar would have crashed. And they would say, what are you, out of mm-hmm. your mind? And that, that wouldn't have worked. But again, because they did it, assuring people, no, no, this is a temporary thing. We're going to suck that liquidity right out. And, you know, Bernanke was, went out on 60 Minutes. The guy was asking this, not exact quote, but words of this effect. He was saying, what if inflation starts to break out? And Bernanke said, we would we would zip it up like that. You know, we would vacuum it up. And no, and he said, there's no doubt in your mind. You're not worried. He said, no doubt in my mind. And so then, and plus it was a panic in time. So the demand to hold money increased. So then when the dollar didn't crash in the first year or two, then everyone just kind of said, oh, all right, they, they must have it under control. It was almost like a a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. since they got away with it then, then every time the market stumbled, oh, this did another round of QE. And then, of course, with COVID too. Why not? If interest rates are rock bottom levels, like that study you were reading, gee, it seems like it's free money. Why wouldn't we just create a trillion dollars and have the Fed monetize it, you know, and and that debt and so forth. And there doesn't seem to be a problem right now. Why not just keep doing that? So, of course, at this point, we are seeing the the fallout from that with price inflation and so on. But Still, that's what they were doing. And you're right. If, if people had seen up front, this is where this is headed, they, I think they would have bought. Like investors would have shorted the dollar and treasuries and whatnot. But because they, they were told that, no, this is a very temporary thing. We're going to unwind this as soon as the economy recovers. And now, yeah, they've, they've changed what the regime is in terms of you know, Fed policy. And it's no, they're no longer talking like that in terms of bringing the balance sheet back down to pre-crisis levels. Now, we might argue that Bernanke and certainly his predecessor, Ellen Greenspan, were very much responsible for the crash of 08, and they were, in fact, the architects of it. Not just them as men or individuals, but the, the Fed uh, governors over which and, and FOMC over which they presided. But nonetheless, just devil's advocate, what, give us the mainstream view that Ben Bernanke saved us in 08 from what would have been a, you know an outright Great Depression and that he is the hero— uh, of that period as as he was feted by Time Magazine. His own self-serving book is called The Courage to Act. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. my gosh, this guy's JFK, PT-109. Um, <laughs> you, you know, what's, what's the mainstream argument 
that Bernanke did right to save us from a real economic catastrophe. Okay, sure. So the backstory is uh, real quick. So the Keynesians in the you know through the fifties and sixties were were arguing that the Great Depression was caused because there was a liquidity trap. Private sector wasn't spending enough in terms of consumption investment, and governments needed to step in. And central banks tried. They pushed interest rates basically down to zero, but you know what? It didn't work because they were pushing on a string and it was a liquidity trap. And so that's why you need huge deficits. So Milton Friedman, Anna Schwartz came along, said, no, what happened was the Fed in the U.S. was asleep at the wheel when there were all these bank runs that caused the quantity of money to shrink because a fractional reserve bank, you would take your money out of the bank. There's a sense in which the total number of dollars shrinks. And so it's given that the quantity of money measured by like M2 shrunk by a third over the first few years in the 30s, there they have it. That's why we had the Great Depression. And so Bernanke then comes along in his 83 paper and says, there's more to the story than that. It wasn't just the shrinking of the money supply. It was the bank failures themselves that contribute. And he had quantitative data to try to show it's not just the sh- like with the timing and such that, no, it's the bank failures even before the, the money shrank and blah, blah, blah. And there's other countries where the money shrank, but the banks didn't fail and it wasn't as bad. So he was trying to really show there was something with massive bank failures per se that caused that, that exacerbated the crisis. It wasn't just as Milton Friedman suggested that people pulling money out of the banks and the banks failing led to a shrinking money supply. So that's you know what he did. And so his work is considered to show the importance of not letting the banking system collapse when there's a crisis underway. And so then, the, so the, the mainstream view that people who like Bernanke are saying, oh, it's a good thing he had the courage to act in the fall of 2008 and he just did whatever it took to save the banking sector, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and so if he hadn't done that, if some, if a lesser man or more timid person had been at the helm they wouldn't have acted as much and then there would have been a banking collapse and then that would have made things even worse. And so that, that, so they're doing a counterfactual. They're saying, Oh yeah, it was bad under his watch, but instead of it being the great Mm. recession, it would have been the greater depression had Bernanke not been there to to save us from the worst excesses of it. So that's the idea. They're, they're claiming it would have been a lot worse had he not done what he did. And do you think he made an actual novel contribution to the literature on monetarism? Well, yes, in, in the limited sense. Like I mean, I said, the guy just that, won a Nobel. Right. So is it worthy of a Nobel? It, it's hard for me. With a lot of this stuff, it's like I understand when you read the papers, you can see because it's like the rules they play by. Yes, it is hard to get basic things. It's sort of like when a bunch of those Chicago school guys won the Nobel Prize for their uh, work on like portfolio theory. And I remember some people at the time were saying, OK, so they just basically said, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And the defenders were like, well, yes, but it's hard to show that rigorously why that's true. You know, mm. <laughs> you know so that's kind of the same thing here. Okay. That, but what Bernanke said is, oh, if there's thousands of bank failures when the economy is already faltering, it's extra bad. And he, you know, why? Well, because banks perform like his, what his paper showed is, oh, banks perform important functions like credit intermediation. And so if that all of a sudden stops, too, in 1931, that's bad because now savers and borrowers can't meet each other. And so that hurts. And okay. so, yeah, that's that's true insofar as it goes. But, you know, his solution. So therefore, we need, you know, the Fed to come in and do all these things to save the banking sector. I would obviously say. Is right. Let me just mention one thing, Jeff, because a lot of people, of course, are taking pot shots. Like, oh, my God, Bernanke engineered the crisis or at least he didn't s- stop it. And then so we're giving him a prize. But then his defenders say, no, the prize is for his academic work. But but even that's not a good defense, because on its own terms, like the way the announcement reads is. These men, you know, enhanced our understanding of of banking and how it, it can lead to crises. 
Well, if that's true, it certainly didn't help Bernanke's understanding because, like you said, Jeff, all throughout when he was either you know on the board or then becoming the chair, he famously or infamously didn't see this coming or was lying about it. So for people who haven't seen it, go to YouTube and just say Ben Bernanke was wrong. And there's a hilarious compilation every step of the way from 2006 onward. He was saying, oh, yeah, there's a problem with housing, but it's going to be contained to the you know, subprime market. And then, oh, yeah, okay. housing in general is in trouble. We're not going to have a recession. Then, oh, yeah, we're going to have a recession, but it won't be too bad. Oh, it's going to be pretty bad, but we'll bounce back. You know, just every step of the way he was wrong. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, if his own work didn't help him to see what was coming, then mm-hmm. why are we getting him, giving him a Nobel Prize for it? How much could it have contributed to our understanding if it didn't help his understanding? So would you characterize him as a monetarist in the Friedmanite sense? Is that is that his school of thought? I th- I think it's probably fair to say that also because people might know, and he just you know added nuance to say, oh, it's not just a quantity of money, but it's also you know the the, the banking sector per se. Um, and, and two points on that, because he famously said to Milton Friedman, like it was, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was his birthday party or something. It was in the early two, was it in the earlier mid two thousands where Bernanke said, I'm paraphrasing folks, but you know, he was at an event where Milton's being honored and, and Ben Ben says, I'm going to abuse, slightly abuse my privilege as a member of the fed to say to you, you're right, Milton, we caused the great depression, but thanks to you, it won't happen again. Mm-hmm. You know, words that would come back to haunt mm-hmm. him, you know, during the so-called great recession. So there's that element. So he's clearly praising, you know, Friedman. So in that sense, yes. But also he's famously known as like helicopter Ben. And so that, you know, his recommendation in other contexts, particularly talking about what Japan should have done in the late nineties, what, you know, he was saying, Oh, you know, if, if, if expectations are, if people expect deflation by which he meant falling prices, you got to snap them out of that. And, you know, if you had to do it in principle, just have the helicopters drop money. Mm-hmm. Like you got to get out of that. And, and so, mm-hmm. yes. in in that, that sense, for sure. He thinks, the quantity of money is a critical variable in explaining all this stuff. Well, in terms of the George W. Bush stimulus checks and also the stimulus payments uh, under both Trump and Biden in the, just the last couple of years, I mean, those were helicopter drops in a sense on the fiscal side. That was actually direct cash checks sent mm-hmm. to individual households. I mean, it's imperfect, but that's an attempt at what I guess what we call helicopter money. Right. And and for people who never heard that phrase or they don't know the distinction. So the normally Fed operations are they buy assets and then that money enters as as reserves into the banking system. And for it to get in the hands of the general public, then the banks have to make loans. And so to circumvent that, that, yeah, you could just like directly put cash in people's pockets or checking accounts or drop it out of helicopters. right. 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 So that so that's where that's what the distinction being drawn is in terms of conventional operations versus how do we get money directly in the hands of the people because we, we want them to go spend. So, right, Jeff. And even there, it was, you know, the Keynesian criticism of that stuff was, well, some of these people might save. You know, you expect <laughs> you give a bunch of money to households when, when the economy is bad. They're going to, like, pay down credit card debts. We need them buy, to go spend. How about if they buy scratch-off tickets? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would help education, and liquor. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I want to talk about Bernanke's courageous period uh, in 2008, because there was obviously his monetary policy machinations, which resulted in these huge QE purchases, this whole new program, which is still, in a sense, been with us uh, up until COVID. And second of all, there was the fiscal side. There was a huge, there were some huge bailouts, TARP and otherwise, during that period. But I, I want to go to David Stockman. I, I happen to really like his book, The Great Deformation. I think it's the single best explanation 
behind-the-scenes look at that mm-hmm. period of crisis, Lehman Brothers, all the other things that happened um, during that time. And David Stockman argues that what he calls the BlackBerry panic of 2008, meaning back then everybody had a BlackBerry or the financial tech, you know, the, the Wall mm-hmm. Street guys had Blackberries instead of whatever iPhones they have today. So he said that the, the um, I'm quoting him, the non-financial businesses of, of Wall Street would have been largely unscathed. And then he extrapolates, you know, that mom and pop businesses out in America would have been largely unscathed. And he says, well, you know, both the uh, corrections of 1987, Black Friday, I think it was called, in October of 87, mm-hmm. and also the tech burst in 2000, 2001, he said, in terms of stock market uh, losses, equity market losses, those were actually both bigger. We didn't have all the extraordinary Fed responses. We had the Greenspan put, but we didn't have the quantitative easing buying. And uh, neither one of those crashes caused a general uh, depression or even severe recession. So do you agree with Stockman that we should have let all the bad debt and all the financial engineering just sort of wash its way out through bankruptcy and insolvency proceedings and that the, the general American public would not have been thrust into a depression? Yes, I, I do agree with with his analysis. And yeah, I second your uh, endorsement, Jeff, that yeah, David Stockman's book was is great in terms of just really getting even two things like showing how if they had let AIG go down, people's life insurance policies would have been fine. You know, those were sequestered mm-hmm. funds. It was, you know, it was a different wing that was dabbling in the credit default swaps and whatnot. You know, he, he takes on the myth, oh, your ATM card would stop working. And he went, goes through and shows that no, that's, that's not true. So yeah, it, I mean, I think there would have been a bad recession. You know, there would have been a huge crash. But if policymakers just kept hands off and let the thing wash out, like you say, I think, you know, within a year, it would have been on a, you know, hit bottom and on a solid road to recovery. Um, With a a lot of these things, yeah, when when they don't intervene, then nothing big happens. And so it's not a historical event. So nobody even cares about it anymore. And so it's, it's perverse where it's precisely because things were so bad that we look at it and then there's this tendency you know to to view the people in charge as heroes it's it's sort of like with presidents mm-hmm. if you're in office and there's a terrible war and thousands of americans die you're going to be considered a great president whereas mm-hmm. if you use diplomacy and and avoid war nobody cares about you because there's nothing memorable in the history books you know right. so it's this perverse right. so it's a similar thing here had they averted the crisis nobody would be saying bernanke was a savior cuz oh what would he do but since he was at the helm when disaster struck, then all of a sudden, you know, oh, well, it's a good thing because it would have been even worse is what okay. the claim is. But no, I think it's the other way around. Well, so so David Stockman's phrase, the BlackBerry panic, he gives four reasons that this uh, crisis would have been largely contained within the financialized economy, the investment houses, the banks, et cetera, and would not have spread to Main Street to all of us. Um, he says, first of all, Allowing interest rates to rise would have made debt more scarce, which would have been economically therapeutic. He says, second, um, all of the the uh, sort of insolvent businesses at the time, real estate, retailing, hospitality, other forms of discretionary consumer spending were overbuilt and that they needed to get out of a lot of their long-term debt and have a lot of bankruptcy and insolvency within those sectors. He says, third, high interest rates would have shut down the multi-trillion dollar flow of new debt to financial engineering. So in other words, it would have stopped the, uh, ri- the, the rapid rise of financialization, which in his view and our view caused the crash to begin with. 
And finally, he says uh, thousands of dramatically overleveraged businesses like Extended Stay America would have declared bankruptcy, gone under court production, uh, continued to operate while they reorganized their debts and liabilities in bankruptcy court. And so, um, the you know, through the for these four reasons, uh, th- this crisis would have been contained. And of course, we'll never know. Now, mm-hmm. that's that's the thing is is. Ben Bernanke can point to the fact that, you know, a year after the crisis of, in Lehman Brothers, America didn't look like Mad Max, and he can declare victory on that basis, right? right. But what we can never know, and this is always a problem, I think, for those of us um, who, who think Austrian economics is largely correct, pair violence ground on this, is, is it, it, we, we have to, sh- to uh, sort of paint a picture of the unseen, for people, and so the question is, what would have happened otherwise? And also, what what in God's name did He put in motion that's going to blow up on our faces? Maybe now, or maybe five years from now. In other words, sometimes uh, what politicians and central bankers do there's a there's a very long lag time before we all pay for it. Yeah, all all great points. And you know, as, as far as what Stockman was arguing, you know, it's the same amount of farmland is there. It's not that the factories would have disappeared or that workers all of a sudden would have forgotten how to build things. Right. So, so the raw materials and and capital goods and so forth, that wouldn't have changed hands just if there were a financial collapse. And as you say, he was just arguing, well, we have procedures in place for when a company has liabilities that exceed its assets, it goes into bankruptcy. And then there's, there's procedures that are used to work that out. And if it makes sense for the business to continue operations while they do the reorganization, they can do that too. So it's not even that, oh, they would all have to shutter their doors and, you know, and all those people would be out of work for a while. That's not necessarily the case either. So it's the point is there were going to be losses because bad investments were made. And then who's going to bear the brunt? And Stockman and other Austrians at the time were saying, how about the people who made those bad decisions? They mm-hmm. should bear the brunt, you know, and their shareholders, they should bear the brunt of it not taxpayers or not dollar holders through the, you know, the Fed monetizing these things. So that, you know, it's, you're not changing. And and so the way the defenders of the rescue efforts to call it that, or interventions, let's say, would defend it is they would say, oh, the the carnage would have been even worse. Mm -hmm. So you guys are wrong Mm -hmm. for thinking there's a fixed amount of damage. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of who gets to allocate it where that no, it would have been like a self-fulfilling crisis or a prophecy and a, you know, contagion and things like that. But again, with all this stuff, I mean, you, you can argue it one way or the other. It's, it's hard to say. What we can do is to say what happened under Bernanke was not even close to, you know, unprecedented, no other period in history like that. And it went hand in hand with what everyone agrees is the worst crisis since the Great Depression. So like prima facie, you would seem the burden of proof is on them because mm-hmm. in other words, it it's not that we're saying, oh, nothing bad happened, but we think it could have been better. No, we're saying something awful did happen right, when they did their right. policies, and it's up to them to show, well, it would have been even more awful <laughs> had they not done these right. things. Right, and, and this isn't just about 08. There's a lot of people in our camps, including Ron Paul, who were warning about what was being created through, you know, from 2000 to 06 in that, in that period where uh, most Americans thought the economy was just fantastic, and after mm-hmm. the, once the tech crisis was over, you know, that was a period of very low interest rates and—, and uh, that was a go-go period in the American economy. So, we, in other words, we're not criticizing Bernanke just because of 08. I mean, yeah, right. And this, yeah. And I forgot to mention that you because you you asked that two minutes ago. You're right. So that 
a lot of these things, there's a time lag involved and that's the perversity. So now, you know, it doesn't matter what Powell does and the rest of the FOMC, like I think there's going to be a big crash and, you know, they can't just keep policy as it was with CPI going through the roof. They got to raise rates and then there's going to be, let's say there's a crash. Everyone's going to say, oh, they tighten too fast and make it look mm-hmm. like it was the, you know, the, the little tactical maneuvers of the Fed, not the Bernanke strategy of, oh, if there's a bad economy, why don't we just create trillions of dollars and and buy assets with it and bail out all the firms that made these horrible investment decisions over the last 10 years that, you know, that there are consequences. And like you said, Jeff, these are all things that Austrians and others warned about in real time years ahead of the crisis. So this isn't just after the fact we're scrambling to come up with an explanation of mm-hmm. what just happened like this. This is sort of predictable stuff. Well, Stockman also has a whole chapter on how the Obama-Bernanke bailouts on the fiscal side with TARP and stimulus and on the monetary side with reflation of the bubble and QE, uh, how these overwhelmingly benefited the 1%, the investor class, the owner class, as opposed to the uh, Main Street folks that Stockman talks about. Right. And I, I think even on this podcast, uh, you know, a few months ago, Jeff, we were talking about this, how not that I would have been in favor of this, but on its own terms, you would think, OK, why didn't they go out and bail out at least to some percentage all the underwater homeowners? But just they didn't pay, do that. Just pay their mortgages. Right. Right. They didn't do that, of course. Instead, they went out and, you know, bought the mortgage backed securities and blah, blah, blah. And they justified it by saying, well, this is going to prop up. Ultimately, we're going to keep you know funds flowing to uh, home buyers and so forth, because we got to help, but they did, they could have just directly done that. And the numbers, it would have been roughly the same amount, but yet they chose not, especially if they didn't completely, you know, raise them up, but just, you know, brought mm-hmm. it closer. So they were closer to being above water. They could have easily done that, but they chose not to. And I don't think it's because of esoteric economic financial reasons. I think it's just because, well, the point of it was to bail out these big politically powerful institutions. Um, yeah, so, isn't, that, yeah. isn't that remarkable? They could have just paid millions of Americans mortgages with all that money. And then all those Americans would have been uh, free to sell their homes or to move mm-hmm. to maybe another part of the country if they lost their job and all kinds of things. I think there are some folks on the left, some left progressives who, who have made that point. I believe Nomi Prince made that point uh, in, in a couple of her books. So that's, it's interesting that everything seems to be top down. Uh, in this, you know, I will add that I guess it is sort of a custom or a tradition for the Fed chair to invite members of what used to be called the Banking Committee. Now it's called the Financial Services Committee uh, to breakfast. And so at some point, Ben Bernanke did invite Ron mm-hmm. to breakfast and um I think one of Ron Stafford's, a guy named Paul Martin Foss, went along with him. And um, I, I remember wanting to know how that went when he got back. It was some 6 a.m. thing over at the Eccles building. And, and Ron said it was cordial, but, but it was certainly strained. And mm-hmm. if you go back and look at some of the exchanges, again, you can, you can just search on, on YouTube's page for Ron Paul Ben Bernanke, and you'll pull up a lot of those exchanges. One, one infamous one is when Ron asks him, do you look at the price of gold every day? Because Paul Volcker famously did. And Bernanke kind of waffles on that. And, and Ron says, do you think gold is money? And Bernanke says, well, I think it's a commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so there were some really interesting like ground level exchanges because most people on the financial services committee don't know anything about money or banking. They're just on there like bumps on a log. So it was interesting to see those exchanges, but also um, to just understand, you'll see on Bernanke's face, uh, almost an exasperated, he's defensive, but he's also exasperated. It's almost like he's explaining to a child for the 10th time, why you can't have, you know, 10 cookies. And so I, you know, I think sometimes Ron tested his patience and Greenspan had the incredible ability to be completely opaque. Alan Greenspan could say 200 words and not say it a thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Bernanke didn't have that skill. I think for some reason, Bernanke just had to be you know, he, he just couldn't be, um, he couldn't obfuscate as well. And so I encourage people to go back and, and look at some of those. But, you know, I mean, what he set in motion, the idea that the central bank should serve as a ready backstop for the treasury market. And even beyond treasuries, the central bank should buy up mortgage-backed securities, many mm-hmm. of which were probably, you know, B minus, you know, I mean, low grade, uh, toxic mortgage sludge from Las Vegas or Florida or someplace like that. Um, You know, is it really much of a step from there to to what we've seen with the Fed becoming the biggest mortgage holder in the country? Um, Alex Pollack, our senior fellow, just gave a speech at AERC, our research conference this year about that. And, And, you know, it's not I mean, how much farther do we have to go to just start buying equities? Start buying FANG stocks. The Swiss National Bank does. The Bank of Japan does. I mean, at what point do we just say the Fed is the market? Right. And they, and they were dabbling with, you know, buying corporate bonds, at least, you know, like one level up in terms of packaging them and things like that. So, yeah, they're, they have that all. The, the, the foundation has been laid. And I'm glad you brought that up. So for people, you know, this wasn't fully on the radar. It's not merely that the Fed under Bernanke in 2008 at the you know, tail end started doing a lot more of what they had always done. It wasn't just turning up the dial. It's the types of things they were doing were qualitatively different as also. Um, and, and a lot of the stuff too was, was arguably illegal. Uh, th- th- so what they did is they created these things called maiden lane LLCs. Cause the fed in terms of the statute is allowed to lend pretty freely, but in terms of what assets it can buy, there's a lot of you know limitations so strictly speaking, it's not that the Fed went out and bought the mortgage-backed securities. They would lend money to this Maiden Lane LLC, which then would go buy the assets. So the fact that we didn't buy any assets, like they, we just lent it to this company, but even but it's still on the Fed's books. Mm. So it's sort of like you know everybody knows what's going on, and this is just like a little quirky thing they did, and everyone looks the other way. Well, well, because they got to do that to save the economy. Well, what does this all mean? Where, what is, I mean, if quantitative easing is what they were then calling extraordinary monetary policy, the Fed buying assets to avert a crisis or, or a wider crisis, a deeper crisis, a longer crisis, is that now ordinary monetary policy? Is this just the new forever normal? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think so. Uh, perhaps not in terms of officially what their stated position is but but yeah they're i don't think they're ever going to be able to go back to the pre-2008 status quo just because like you say jeff as as to how they've you know maneuvered themselves at least not unless there's a an absolute dollar crash or collapse even and then we just you know reset with something brand new in which case they could do whatever they want i suppose but yeah there's there's no way just to 
walk this back without there being a huge crisis. And so, yeah, I think they've, whatever metaphor you want to use, painted themselves into a corner. Because it's also, too, they began, and this is an interesting thing also that, remember, it's like, oh, this great academic Bernanke who did all this Mm -hmm. work on how do you prevent crises and things. And so then he gets in there and they start doing QE, but then right at the same time, they start paying interest on reserves. So effectively paying banks to not make loans to their customers. And I know there were a lot of academics who were scratching their head. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why are they? Why is the Fed doing that? I mean, Bernanke's own work shows that he should. They should be encouraging lending. That's the whole point. You want to keep, you know, let don't let the banks collapse, like they did in the early 30s. But then you wouldn't pay them to not make loans. That kind of defeats the point, right? And well, if you think that Bernanke is just doing what his academic papers said, but if mm-hmm. instead you think he's bailing out the banking sector, then paying them interest on the reserves they keep parked at the Fed makes perfect sense. Right. So, you know, there was there was that element as well. So that's another change they introduced um, that they, they implemented uh, because of this. So. So, yes, Jeff, to answer your question, what the way they're doing things now is dramatically different from before. And I don't think they're going to be able to to go back to that. I mean, they they floated some things they were going to do average inflation targeting. And that was in effect mm-hmm. for like, I don't even know if it went a full year before they kind of said, actually, <laughs> what we're really doing is such and such. So. They keep saying new things that buys them a little bit of time when the market's like, okay, finally, they're serious. And then when it becomes inconvenient, they stop doing that. Well, I want to wrap this up with a question for you. Uh, I know some Austrians still hold out faint hope that Israel Mm -hmm. Kirsner at NYU might get a Nobel before he dies. He's in his 90s, presumably for his work in the area of entrepreneurial discovery uh, I, I guess I'm curious, did you have Professor Kirstner during your years at NYU as a prof? Yeah, so he he wasn't teaching the, the PhD students any classes, but he was teaching them at my master's level history of economic thought. So I took that uh, and it's, it actually screwed things up with my fellowship that I was going to have to pay out of pocket for my econometrics class because I, I didn't realize they were only going to pay for so much and what history of economic thought was not necessary. <laughs> so that was like great something I was doing on the side for fun. And so, uh, but yes, to answer, I did take that class with him and it was, it was great. Yeah, it okay. was very good. And the, the, the argument is that, which is somewhat plausible is if, if William Baumel gets the prize for his work on entrepreneurship, which would totally make, and Baumel, he's written more books than most academics have art journal articles. And I mean that literally, that's wow. not an exaggeration. Okay. So if, and he was also at NYU, also, you know, pleasant guy. Um, so if, if he, the, the claim is if he wins it, they can't not give it to Kersner. Okay. And so, you know, they're both pretty old though. So, you know, who it's a, we'll, we'll see, but I guess, yeah, it wouldn't be shocking if, if he got it. So I don't think it's completely ludicrous for Austrians to hold out hope that that could happen. Okay. Well, I'll leave everybody with this quote then from Murray Rothbard. Uh, what he had to say, writing in human events back in the day, Murray wrote for everything, national review, human events, you name it. So he had this to say about about Friedrich Hayek winning the Nobel in 74. He said, it comes as a surprise on two counts, not only because all the previous prizes in economics have gone to left liberals and opponents of the free market, but also because they've gone uniformly to economists who have transformed the discipline into a supposed science, quotes, filled with mathematical jargon and unrealistic models, which are then used to criticize the free enterprise system and attempt to plan the economy by the central government. F.A. Hayek is not only the leading free market economist, he has also led the way in attacking the mathematical models and the planning pretensions of the would-be scientists. So anyway, uh, Murray was thrilled, and I I know a lot of people consider it Mises' 
Nobel in some ways. But Bob, I guess I'll have to leave it with that and wait wait for the day when you and Peter Klein and Para Byland are, uh, are, are receiving that award. I hope I love to see that day. So I want to thank everybody for joining us. Bob, thank you for your time. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.